Welcome to Counterspin, your weekly look behind the headlines. I'm Janine Jackson. This week on Counterspin, if there are ideas, tools, or tactics that are part of both this country's horror-filled past and some people's vision for its dystopic future, they are at work in Cop City in Atlanta, Georgia. Over-policing, racist policing, paramilitarization, usurping of public resources, environmental racism, community voicelessness, and efforts to criminalize protest, or that is, some kinds of protest. It's all here. Add to that a corporate press corps that disaggregate issues that are actually intertwined, Black people, for example, are impacted not just by police violence, but also by environmental degradation, breathing air and drinking water as we do, and a press corps that seems intent on forcing a vital, important situation into some old, tired, and harmful frames. Kamal Franklin is founder of Community Movement Builders, the national grassroots group, and co-host of the podcast Renegade Culture. We'll hear from him about Cop City and the resistance to it. That's coming up, but first a quick look back at some recent press. President Biden surprised some people when he reversed course and announced that he would support a Republican resolution to nullify an overhaul of crime laws passed by Washington, D.C.'s council. Congress has the authority to override D.C. legislation, but it hasn't done so in more than 30 years. And Biden has both endorsed statehood for D.C., taxation without representation and all of that, and publicly opposed this resolution, calling it an example of how D.C. is denied true self-governance. But as Fair's Julie Holler notes, if you're looking for hypocrisy, well, let's look also at the Washington Post. The Post's editorial board has written forcefully for D.C. statehood on many occasions. That the 650,000 people who live in the nation's capital are denied their full rights as U.S. citizens, the Post has said, is a travesty that cannot be condoned and should not be continued. In 2020, the Post board called it a civil rights issue and lamented that D.C.'s municipal affairs should be, quote, subject to the whims of those who sit in the White House and Congress, close quote. But there are principles and then there are principles. The Post's position isn't really about self-government or civil rights, just whether they happen to fancy today's particular whims of powerful people. So the paper endorsed Biden's decision to nullify D.C. citizens' voice, but you can hear their hands ringing as they write that, quote, it's a shame it came to this, close quote. But Biden had to choose public safety over home rule for the capital city. Congress, the Post says, has the right to intercede. The paper's Martin Luther King Day editorial was headlined, D.C.'s crime bill could make the city more dangerous. And it claimed that the bill would further tie the hands of police and prosecutors while overwhelming courts. Well, in part, this would be because the bill would give people facing possible prison time the right to a jury trial. Or, according to the Post, would leave dangerous people on the streets as they await trial. So the paper appears to object to the right to a jury of one's peers 
and to the presumption of innocence until proven guilty. As Slate's Mark Joseph Stern has carefully explained, the bill is not a traditional reform bill. It's the result of a 16-year process to overhaul a badly outdated, confusing, and often arbitrary criminal code. It was drafted by an advisory group that included representatives from the D.C. Attorney General's Office and the U.S. Attorney's Office. Those are the two offices that prosecute all crimes in D.C., and its revisions were in line with uncontroversial moves conducted in red and blue jurisdictions alike since the 1960s. So this advisory group unanimously voted to submit its recommendations to the D.C. Council, which in turn unanimously passed the bill. The rampant media notion that the bill softens penalties for violent crime, Stern writes, is false in every way that matters. To the contrary, the law increases penalties for a variety of crimes, including several sex offenses and maximum penalties for possessing an assault rifle, ghost gun, large capacity magazine, or bomb. The bill doesn't reduce or even attempt to reduce incarceration, even though Washington, D.C. has one of the highest incarceration rates in the country. Ninety percent of those incarcerated in Washington, D.C. are black, as compared to 45 percent of the population. Congress, as Holler notes, is 11 percent black, and the Washington Post editorial board is 100 percent white. The board's one black member, Jonathan Capehart, resigned last year, reportedly because after Democratic Senator Raphael Warnock won re-election, Capehart's white colleagues insisted on an editorial line that would mock anyone who had warned about voter suppression in Georgia. Polls say that some 83 percent of D.C.'s registered voters, all ethnicities, approved of the crime reform bill that the Washington Post now says has to be shut down, oh, so regrettably, but, you know, for the good of the people. So in case you missed it, the Washington Post righteously condemns anyone who would deny D.C. residents self-governance unless or until they disagree with those people's decisions about how to govern themselves. You're listening to Counterspin, brought to you each week by the media watch group FAIR. The clearing of land, including forest in South Atlanta, to build a gigantic police training complex brings together so many concerns it's hard to know where to begin. The January police killing of a protester, an environmental activist known as Tortuguita, whose autopsy suggests they were sitting down with their hands raised when cops shot them multiple times, is a flashpoint illuminating a constellation of harms proposed by what's been dubbed Cop City, as well as resistance to them. Our guest is in the thick of it. Kamal Franklin is founder of the national grassroots organization Community Movement Builders and co-host of the podcast Renegade Culture. He joins us now by phone from Atlanta. Welcome to Counterspin, Kamal Franklin. Hey, thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Well, Cop City seems to bring together so much that is wrong and painful for black and brown people, but we can actually start with the land itself. Uh, The place where this paramilitary police camp is planned has some meaningful history, doesn't it? 
Yeah, this land, which has been dug by us, the Walani Forest, which originally the home of part of the Muskegee Nation. Uh, the Muskegee Nation was the native occupiers of that land, the original occupiers of that land. And they were removed in an ethnic cleansing war by the United States from that land and pushed off. And since that time period, the land has been used initially partly as a plantation where enslaved Africans were brought to the land and made to work on that land. Later, the land was transferred into a prison farm where working class people and poor people, and again, particularly black folks, were put on the land to continue working for state at uh, at obviously no wages and being punished and harassed and brutally treated. The land has also served as a youth imprisonment camp, and the police have done trainings on that land. So that land has been, over time period, used for the brutal and harsh treatment of black people in particular, but also of poor and working class people. One quick thing I want to say also is that that land, in terms of it being a forest before the invention of Cop City, was promised to the adjacent community, which is 70% black, as a recreational and park area, particularly as the land reforested itself over time park area where there are supposed to be nature trails, hiking available, again, parks available. And when the idea of Cop City arose from the Atlanta Police Department, the City of Atlanta, and the Atlanta Police Foundation, all of those plans were scrapped immediately without any input from that adjacent or adjoining community. And instead, they decided to move forward with this idea of Cop City. Well, I think that's why folks are talking about, I've heard a reference to layers of violence uh, at work here. And I think, you know, that's kind of what they're getting at is there's what this place would be for, you know, its purpose. And then there's also the process of how it is being pushed on people that didn't want it. And then there's also the physical environmental impact of the construction. It's a lot. And yet they're all intertwined these problems. Yeah, this is a perfect illustration of how the state uh, vis-a-vis the city, the state government, and even in some ways the federal government operate in tandem. Uh, And a lot of times, most of the time, it doesn't matter what party they are, but operate in tandem at the whim of capital and at the whim of a relatively speaking right-wing ideological outlook. And again, it doesn't matter which party it is we're talking about. I mean, it doesn't matter uh, whether or not those folks are black or white, but a uh, ideological outlook that says over-policing in black and brown communities is the answer to every problem. And so here in particular, you talked about the process. This process of developing Cop City came after the 2020 uprisings against police violence. The 2020 uprisings that were national in scope uh, that started after Breonna Taylor, George Floyd, and here in Atlanta, Rashard Brooks was killed by the police. And it caused a massive uprising and movement across the nation again. The response by the authorities here in Atlanta were to push through their plans on building Cop City to double down on their efforts. One, again, to continue the over-policing of black communities, in particular here in Atlanta. Atlanta is a city that is gentrifying at astronomical rates. It's going from a 60% black city to one that's less than 50% in only a matter of 20, 30 years, all of that under black leadership. It's a city 
that in terms of those who are arrested, 90% of those who are arrested in Atlanta by the police are black people. The jails are filled with black people. And so this is a city that doubled down on police violence or police militarization after these uprisings. In addition, we feel like the part of Cop City, in terms of its, its militarization, it's over a dozen firing ranges, its mock cities, the practice urban warfare, its military-grade structure that it's bragging about, the fact that its past facility is called the paramilitary center, and this one is also going to be a paramilitary center. In its earliest iterations of what it was supposed to be, it included a landing pad for a Black Hawk helicopter, something they've now said that they've taken out. This, for us, has been put forth to harass and stop future mobilizations and movements and uprisings against police brutality and misconduct. It was pushed through the city council. 70% of the people who called in on the night of the vote voted against Cop City, but yet the city council members decided to still enact this. Um, And so this has been run over the heads of the community without community input. And it is something that we think is dangerous for both the over-policing and, as you stated earlier, the environmental concerns of stripping away a forest of 100 acres immediately. This particular area is something that is akin to having uh, floods. Once they start stripping even more of the forested area away, there's going to be even more and increased floods. The loudness of the shootings, the other things that's going to be happening, this is going to be something that's extremely detrimental to the environment and the continued degradation of the climate if it is allowed to take place and happen. I think folks listening would understand why there are multiple points of resistance, why there are a range of communities and folks who would be against this. Some listeners may not know, people have been protesting Cop City for years now. But now, Tortuguita's killing amid ongoing protests has given an opening for corporate media to plug this into a narrative about violent activists and clashes. And this is par for the course for elite media, but and I'm just picking up on what you've just said, Mm -hmm. it's especially perverse here because we're seeing community resistance and rejection of hyper-policing presented as itself a reason for more of that hyper and racist policing. It's a knot. It's a real complicated knot here. No, you're exactly right. And and we should say, again, that you're right. People have been protesting against Cop City since we found out about it in 2021. And our protests have been, since its beginning, met with police violence. Mm-hmm. Uh, when we were protesting at City Hall, doing petition drives, town halls, contacting our legislators, legislators, when all that was happening and we were doing protests at City Hall and other places, the police would come and break up our protests. They conducted over 20 arrests during the early stages of uh, our protest movement against Cop City. At that particular time, people were being arrested for charges of disorderly conduct, resisting arrest, obstruction of governmental administration. After they passed the resolution to grant the lease to the Atlanta Police Foundation, and part of our tactics began to have, there were folks who moved to the actual forest and became forest defenders as a, an act of civil disobedience. Then the policing agency in Atlanta basically hooked up and created a task force. So the Atlanta Police Department, the DeKalb County Police Department, Georgia Bureau of Investigation, 
the Federal Bureau of Investigation and Homeland Security actually formed a task force where they first began having discussions on bringing charges of state domestic terrorism. And so in December of last year, they conducted a raid in the forest and arrested approximately five or six people. And those were the first folks who were charged with domestic terrorism. On January 18th, they did a second raid and they charged another five or six folks with domestic terrorism. And that was the raid in which they killed Twitigita, the forest defender, activist, and organizer, who again, as you pointed out earlier, through a private autopsy done by the family because the Georgia Bureau of Investigation refuses to release information on their supposed or alleged investigation into this matter. The private autopsy is the first indication that we have that the police narrative on how he was killed or how they were killed was a complete lie. Mm -hmm. uh, Tortuguita was sitting cross-legged and hands were up to protect their face from the firing directly into their body. Uh, they were hit approximately 13 times, uh, and it may be more, but the second autopsy could not determine which were exit wounds and what were entry wounds. After the killing of Tortuguita, another six or seven protesters were arrested at a rally downtown. And then this past Sunday, during our week of action against Cop City, another 35 arrests took place, 22 of those people were charged with domestic terrorism. So we now have approximately 41 or 42 people who have been charged with domestic terrorism. And this is a scare tactic meant to demoralize the movement. And it's also meant to criminalize the movement in the eyes of the larger public. And this is something that's been a tactic and strategy of the state since day one. But with the help, as you said, with corporate media, they are trying to get this narrative out there. And we are left to fight back against this narrative, which is obviously untrue. And it's been long in the works and long on the wish list. You know, I remember talking to Mara Hayden Hilliard about J20, about people who had been arrested protesting Trump's inauguration and, and the slippery tactics that not just law enforcement, but also the courts were using to say you were near a person or dressed similarly to a person who we believe committed a crime against property and therefore you are swept up in this dragnet and charged with felonies, you know, and with, with a, a lifetime mm -hmm. in prison, you know, and, and it is, yeah. and let's, let's underscore, it's a scare tactic. It's a way to keep people in their homes. It's a way to keep people from coming out in the street to use their voice on issues they care about. Yeah, Steph, and I think it's important what you pointed out. I'm sure viewers may have seen pictures of property destruction you know, and again, this movement is autonomous and people are engaged in different actions. We don't equate property destruction with the violence that the police have reigned on black and brown communities over centuries. To mm -hmm. be clear, we don't equate the idea of property destruction with the violent killings that led to the 2020 uprisings and the prior violent killings by the police of unarmed uh, black people over, again, decades. But what's important to point out, even in these arrests, is that the folks who have been arrested in charge of domestic terrorism were actually involved in acts of civil disobedience at best. Mm -hmm. The people in the forest who were arrested during the first two raids we spoke about were people who were sitting in tree huts and sitting in camps under trees. The police had no evidence whatsoever that suggested they'd been involved either at that time or prior in any destruction of property. And even if they did have such evidence, then the correct legal charge would be vandalism or destruction of property. These domestic terrorism charges are purposely meant 
to put fear in the heart of organizers and activists, not only on this issue, but in future issues, when the state levels its power, it's going to say that you tried to, and this is how broad the statute is, mm -hmm. that the attempt to influence government policy by demonstrative means, so by civil disobedience means, can be interpreted uh, as domestic terrorism. And this is the first time in Georgia that the state statute has ever been used. And the first choice to use it on are organizers and activists who are fighting against police violence. And are we also going to see, I see Alec Karakatsanis pointing out that we're also seeing this line about outside agitators. You know, every, everything old is new again. In other words, all these old tropes and tactics, it seems like they're all coming to fore here. And one of them is the idea that this isn't really about the community. This is about people who are professional activists, professional troublemakers. And the, the phrase outside agitators is even kind of bubbling up again. And that's a particular kind of divide and conquer tactic. Most definitely. We should be clear that the heart of the Stop Cop City movement has been organizers and activists and community members, voting rights advocates, civil rights advocates who have either been born or who have lived in Atlanta for a number of years. But that movement has welcomed in people from all across the country to try to support an ending cop city, whether or not that's national support that people give from their homes and or whether or not that's been support that people have traveled down to Atlanta to give support to either forest defenders or the larger movement to stop Cop City. We see the language of outside agitators as being, as you said, a trope that is born from, born from the language of Southern segregationists that were used against people like Dr. King, the Civil Rights Movement, Freedom Riders. And so when we have black elected officials parroting the language of Southern segregationists, it tells us how far we've come in terms of having representative politics where basically you have black faces representing capitalism, representing corporations, representing developers who have turned their backs on the working class and poor black communities who they've helped push out of the city in favor of these corporations and in favor on strengthening a police apparatus that, again, is going to be used against that very black community that they claim to represent. Well, finally, one of the corporate investors in Cop City, along with Home Depot and Coca-Cola and Delta, is Cox Enterprises, which owns the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, which I understand is editorially supportive of Cop City. I wonder what you're making of local media, maybe in contrast to national media or international media. And then as a media critic, it's strange, but a lot of what I want to say is don't Follow. Don't look to media to tell you about what's happening, about what's possible, about who matters, you know, because it's a distortion. So I want you to talk a little about the resistance, you know, for folks, but also maybe they're not seeing that resistance in their news media and there are reasons for that. We have a couple of reporters, I'll single them out, who have attempted at least to give a fair hearing to the struggle around Cop City. However, the overwhelming local reporting has been in favor and have led continually with the police narrative, with the city narrative, with the state narrative on this benign training center, as they presented, and these outside agitators we spoke to earlier, organizers who are coming in. 
That's been the central narrative. So even when we talk about police violence, they never use the term police violence. They only use violence in conjunction with the organizers and activists. That's whether or not a so-called peaceful protest has been taking place and the police arrest organizers, and that's whether or not there's this quiet civil disobedience by staying in the woods. Any time organizers or activists are brought up, they don't hesitate but to use the word violence. And so we understand that not only the media that's directly connected to Cox, which is a funder of the Atlanta Police Foundation and a funder of Cop City, and as you stated, editorially has put out four, five, six editorials that have all been in support of Cop City and that have all tried to label organizers and activists as violent. But other corporate media, local corporate media, has been on that same bandwagon, except for a few notable exceptions. We've gotten much better press, or much, a much more favorable hearing mm-hmm. that at least tells our side from national media, from outlets who have a perspective that understand what organizing and activism and capitalism is in terms of the way the society works, and from international media. The things that have helped us get the word out to talk about the struggle has been media platforms like this and others, which have a perspective that understand the role of the United States and the United States government entities uh, and corporations and how the world is run. Uh, Without that perspective, we would be completely at a loss to get the word out in any way that could be considered fair and or accurate. You want to shout out any reporters or outlets? I would say Candace Burned at Truth Out has been doing some deep and thoughtful things on it. And internationally, I've seen a few things. But if there are reporters or outlets that you think deserve a shout out, by all means. The Guardian has done a good job of representing organizer and activist concerns. As you said, Truth Out, Millennials Are Killing Capitalism as a podcast has done a fantastic job. Cocktails and Capitalism has done a fantastic job. Uh, We've had some good reporting in Essence Magazine, actually. And so there have been outlets that have given us, again, a fair hearing on our views on the history of policing, on understanding capitalist development and capital development and corporate development here, not only in Atlanta, but in other urban cities across the country. And so we thank those outlets uh, for at least the opportunity to give voice as we fight back against a dominant corporate narrative uh, that is all about supporting the police, supporting violent and militarized policing, and supporting the continued criminalization of movements that fight against it. We've been speaking with Kamal Franklin. He's founder of the National Grassroots Organization Community Movement Builders. They're online at communitymovementbuilders.org. He's also co-host of the podcast Renegade Culture. Kamal Franklin, thank you so much for joining us this week on Counterspin. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. And that's it for Counterspin for this week. Counterspin is produced by FAIR, the National Media Watch Group based in New York. If you missed part of today's show or you'd like to hear previous shows, you can find shows and transcripts on our website, FAIR.org. The website's also the place to look into our newsletter extra or to show support for the show if you are so inclined. The show is engineered by Alex Noyes. I'm Janine Jackson. Thank you for listening to Counterspin. Counterspin.